Welcome back. Class is back in session and we are discussing enuresis, which is a very common childhood problem. So just a quick review of definitions. We've um, gone over this before, but enuresis, of course, means bedwetting. Primary enuresis is bedwetting that persists past the age at which nighttime continence is normally established. So this is a child who's never, ever been dry at night. Secondary enuresis is bedwetting that recurs after nighttime continence has been achieved. So this is a child who was dry, something happened, and now he or she is wet again. So what causes it? This is what parents want to know. It's so frustrating for parents. A lot of parents mistakenly believe that the child is acting out or that they themselves have done something wrong to cause this problem. But the most prevalent theory is that actually it's a developmental delay. And not developmental delay in terms of cognitive function, but when you think of all the neurologic pathways that have to mature in order for us to achieve continence or many of the other um, complex tasks that we have to um, attain control over, there's pathways that control the depth of sleep and that allow us to waken to visceral stimuli. So you've all waked up because your bladder was full, you've waked up because you felt sick to your stomach, you've waked up because it's like, I think I'm about to have diarrhea. That required maturation of some neurological pathways because normally when we go to sleep, we kind of shut everything down, right? So we kind of tell our central processing unit, leave me alone, I'm going to bed. So don't wake me up for anything trivial. Do wake me up if there's somebody in the house. Do wake me up if something's wrong with the kids. Do wake me up if my bladder's full or my rectum's full. And other than that, leave me alone. Well, we need for our central processing unit to be able to sort through stimuli and know when to uh, actually cause us to waken and when to leave us alone. So it's a much higher level um, skill than we recognize and for children within uresis that pathway has not yet matured so what happens is they sleep through the stimulus of a full bladder. The other thing that requires maturation of some developmental pathways is nocturnal production of ADH. So normally we produce ADH at night that concentrates our urine, allows us to sleep through the night. There's a reason that some urinalysis tests are done on early morning specimens because some tests require concentrated urine. That's normally when urine is most concentrated. But for children within uresis, that has not occurred. Most of them do not produce enough ADH at night. And as a result, they produce high volume urine that overwhelms bladder capacity. They fail to wake to the sensation of a full bladder. And therefore, night after night, they have episodes of bedwetting. Parents usually describe the child as a very sl heavy sleeper. They say nothing wakes him up. A tornado wouldn't wake him up. And then they say the child floods the bed despite fluid restriction and bedtime toileting. 
Now, there are some other theories um, regarding etiologic factors. The developmental delay is the most prevalent theory, the one with the strongest evidence base. But some children do have daytime issues as well, and children who have daytime issues with frequency and urgency, in addition to nighttime issues with bedwetting, frequently have inadequate bladder capacity and would benefit some from some bladder retraining programs. We'll talk about that in another class. What about emotional issues? We've said these children are not acting out. There is nothing remotely voluntary about their behavior. They sleep through the behavior. But as we mentioned in a previous class, emotional issues are significant and secondary in uresis. Why would a child go from dry at night to wet at night? And it's usually due to some kind of emotional trauma that caused a degree of regression. And so they've gone back to where they were before. As we said in a previous class, it could have been a death in the family. It could have been divorce. It could be a new sibling. It could be anything that causes upheaval in the family and acts as a stressor for the child. Sleep disorders, sleep apnea, um, ear, nose, throat physicians frequently report that children with enlarged tonsils and adenoids who are enuretic before treatment um, experience spontaneous resolution of their enuresis once the issues with their enlarged tonsils and adenoids are corrected and once they're sleeping normally. So we talked in a previous class about if you have a child who is a sleepwalker, he or she may also be a bedwetter. If you have a child who has problems with sleep apnea, he or she may also be a bedwetter. So in that case, many times correction of the underlying issue takes care of the bedwetting. And a lot of support for a genetic link because we have very good data that says children with one parent who had this issue as a child are much more likely to have enuresis than a child whose parents had no issues. If a child had, has two parents who had this issue as a child, then they're well over 50% in terms of likelihood for having this problem. Of course, when we're choosing our life partners, we don't typically ask them. We don't usually say, you know, just thinking of our future children, I was a bedwetter. Were you a bedwetter? Because we don't want to give them a double whammy. So it's something you find out about after the fact. Clinical presentation, very straightforward. The child wets the bed. It's usually large volume. It's usually dilute. Most kids with enuresis are completely dry during the day, and they call that monosymptomatic enuresis. Some have daytime issues as well. Those are typically kids who have low-capacity bladders, and that's sometimes referred to as non-monosymptomatic enuresis for reasons I do not understand. Don't worry about those terms. Assessment and diagnosis, straightforward. History and physical is typically all you need. The history is gonna give you the information you need. Physical is done to rule out any other issues. Um, so you ask them specifically, are there any things going on during the daytime? Does this child have more problems with urinary frequency and urgency than your other kids than, than his or, her or her peers? 
Do they have any episodes of leakage during the day? Does he or she have a history of urinary tract infections? If so, then you have to worry about is there any degree of retention and you would definitely want to get a post-void residual via ultrasound. You want to ask about problems with constipation. When we talk about problems with constipation in children, we'll do that in a later class, we're going to talk about the fact that these two problems are frequently linked. So a lot of kids who have major problems with childhood constipation also have problems with enuresis and vice versa. So any child who's bladder who has bladder control issues should be queried in terms of bowel function and any um, bowel management issues. Very important to ask, how is this affecting this child? Is this a major concern for this child? Is this child very embarrassed? Do you see it affecting their relationships? Do they avoid sleepovers? Do they avoid going to camp? Are they not a candidate to go to camp because they have problems with bedwetting? How's it affecting your child's relationship with you? Do you get angry at the child? A lot of parents do because it's very frustrating. So you want to hear from the parents and the child, what impact is this having? The impact of the enuresis is a critical determining factor in terms of how aggressive do you want to be with treatment. If the child has secondary enuresis, you want to know, okay, at what age did they originally gain nighttime control? When did bed waiting recur? And what events occurred in the few weeks to months preceding the recurrent enuresis? Beyond a careful history and physical, you're going to do a urinalysis because you want to rule out infection. You're going to do a post-void residual if there are any concerns at all about retention. And very helpful to do a bladder chart, typically over a weekend, so the parents can be there to help. And that will allow you to assess bladder capacity. So what about management? It is a very straightforward pathway. If you pick up anything in your history, in your physical, in your limited diagnostic testing, you're going to treat it. There is a urinary tract infection and the child is symptomatic, you're going to treat. If the child has chronic constipation, you're going to do a clean out. You're going to be sure the child's getting adequate fiber and fluids. If you pick up on any issues with retention, that child should be seen by a urologist because retention is totally abnormal in a child. We have to figure out what's going on and what needs to be done. You want to make sure the child does have adequate bladder capacity. So remember your formula is aging years times 30 plus 30. If you have a child who has low bladder capacity, then you want to put that child on a bladder retraining program. We'll talk about that more when we talk about overactive bladder and urge incontinence. But the mass, vast majority of these kids don't have anything else going on. They just have enuresis. That's the only issue. Now, one option is not to treat actively at all, simply to educate the child and the parents to make sure that everyone understands it's not the child's fault and it's not the parent's fault. Nobody needs to feel guilty. There should be no blaming. The basis for no intervention is 
wonderful data that says the vast majority of kids spontaneously outgrow enuresis. Almost all by puberty by age 12, but many by age 6 to 8. So you see a big reduction in the prevalence of enuresis between ages 6 to 8 and another big reduction at puberty. But this works only if the parents are okay and the child is okay. You have to be really clear who's going to manage the wet sheets. What's the child's responsibility? What's the parent's responsibility? If you pick up on any kind of emotional distress, if the parents say, well, you know, I've noticed that she's more withdrawn, she's less social, or he was really upset because he had an accident at camp, doesn't want to go back to camp, or they don't want to go to sleepovers, then active therapy is probably indicated. I remember one of my friends was telling me her little girl had problems with enuresis, and so she was coming up on her fifth or sixth birthday, and she said to her, she's like, Amy, what do you want to do for your birthday? And first she said, I think I want to have a sleepover. And then she said, no, no, Mommy, I don't want to have a sleepover. She's like, well, I'd love to have a sleepover. Why do you not want to have a sleepover? She's like, I might wet the bed and everybody would know. And her, her mom said, well, you know what? I know how we can handle that. She said, we can just put you in pull-ups and then nobody will have to know. And she's like, no, they'll see the pull-ups and then they'll know. So her mom says, well, we could put you in pull-ups and then put regular panties on top. She's like, mommy, pull-ups make noise. They rustle. I don't want to have a sleepover. So does that child need more aggressive treatment? Yes, because it's affecting her willingness and her comfort with usual social activities. If you have a child with secondary enuresis, yes, you probably want to get that child into counseling because something's going on with that kid. That kid is struggling. There's some kind of traumatic event, and the child probably needs help resolving their feelings. Let's say that the parents or the child say, no, I, I, we want treatment. We want treatment because he wants to go to camp next summer and you have to be dry to go to camp. Or she wants to be dry because she wants to be able to have friends spend the night and she doesn't want to be embarrassed. Okay, the primary intervention is alarm therapy. It's a very simple concept. Remember, the problem is this child does not wake to the sensation of a full bladder. So what we want to do is we want to teach them to wake when their bladder's full. So you have a pad, the child sleeps on a pad that is moisture sensitive and is hooked to an alarm. And I hope you can see that <clears throat> between the um, slide on top and on bottom. So this pad's very moisture sensitive at the first drop of urine, the alarm sounds. Sometimes the alarm is placed on the bedside table. Sometimes the child wears it attached to their pajama bottoms. Now the importance of the alarm sounding at the first drop of moisture is remember our goal is not to wake the child up when the bed is wet, but to wake the child up when the bladder is still full. So we need to wake the child at the beginning avoiding, not at the end. Now, what the studies have shown is that alarm therapy is extremely effective 
as long as the child wakes to the alarm. Now, some parents will tell you everybody woke to the alarm. We woke, the dogs woke, the dogs barked, the neighbors woke. Johnny was still asleep. But look at the last bullet point. If the child fails to wake in response to the alarm, it's really important for the parents to wake the child. So the parents have to be very committed to this program. The whole goal is wake the child when the bladder's full, when they start to void. How long do they need to continue the therapy? Until they're consistently dry and then 14 days past that point. And it's really when you talk to continence nurse advisors in the UK and in Canada and Australia, they do a lot of work with children and in uresis and they have really neat little things where kids have written them thank you notes about how important it is to them to be dry. So alarm therapy, very, very effective. Is there anything else? Well, there's actually a medication. There's nasal or oral DDABP, which is a synthetic ADH. So one of the problems is this child doesn't make enough ADH at night. They don't concentrate their urine. But you can give them ADH either orally or be a nasal spray. Then they will concentrate their urine. They won't be producing high volume dilute urine. They won't overwhelm their bladder capacity and you significantly reduce the potential for bedwetting episodes. So a lot of parents will evaluate their child's response to um, DDAVP. They'll give it to the child several nights to see does it work. And if it does work, they may very well use it in conjunction with alarm therapy. Some of them use it PRN. So they might say, I'm going to give it to her so that she can go to this sleepover. I'm going to give it to him while he's at camp. If you do use DDAVP routinely, it's important to give your child drug holidays so that you know if the issue has spontaneously resolved. Because DDAVP doesn't eliminate the underlying problem, it just manages it by reducing urine output. So you could be doing meds plus DDA, I mean meds plus alarm therapy, alarm therapy alone, medications alone. All of those are acceptable. So in summary, primary enuresis is usually due to a developmental delay that affects the child's ability to wake to the sensation of a full bladder and by inadequate production of ADH during nighttime hours, which causes high volume, dilute urine production. Secondary enuresis is almost always due to a traumatic event that causes the child to regress. Diagnosis is very straightforward. It's primarily history, recurrent bedwetting. You do need to rule out inadequate bladder capacity. That takes a bladder chart. You need to rule out UTI. That takes a urinalysis. You need to rule out any indicators of retention, and if you pick up on anything that suggests retention, you're going to do a PVR. And you always assess bowel function and manage any coexisting constipation. Management, also very straightforward. So do they have an infection? Treat it. Are they constipated? Treat it. Then talk with the parent and the child. What do they want to do? Do they want to just wait and let the child outgrow it? 
Do they want to pursue behavioral therapy, alarm therapy? Do they want to use medications or do they want to use some kind of combination therapy? Okay, that's it for in your races. Thank you very much.